Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. This past week, millions of Americans became eligible to receive the Pfizer booster to help increase their protection against COVID-19. But just who is eligible? There's booster confusion. All we're talking about is Pfizer. If you're 65 and older, and it's been six months or more, you are eligible for a booster. If you're 50 to 64, and you have medical conditions that place you at high risk, you are eligible for the booster. If you're 18 to 49, talk to your provider. Based on medical condition and your individual balance of risks and benefits, you may be able to get it. But are boosters the answer to the COVID pandemic? We cannot boost our way out of this pandemic. This is a chasing our tail kind of scenario until we get the large proportion of Americans who are eligible for vaccines vaccinated. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We're recording this podcast on Monday, September the 27th, 2021. There has been a lot of news around COVID and boosters and vaccines, and boy, has the path to approval for boosters been confusing. And so I'm so delighted that we have Greg Poland back today to help explain this to us. Welcome back, Greg. Thank you, Helena. You know what? I wore my viral tie again. I've only worn it one other time on this podcast. Love the viral tie. <laughs> the spirit. Great. <laughs> Tell us, tell us, Greg, about what was the path? How did all this come down? And what is the answer now about boosters? Yeah, it's, it's led to a lot of booster confusion. <laughs> but let me, let me start back with the FDA meeting. So this occurred uh, a week ago, Friday. And the FDA advisory committee was confronted after hearing the data with the question, do the safety and effectiveness data support approval of a dose, a booster dose, six months or more after the primary Pfizer series in people 16 and older? Only Pfizer, and we'll get to that only, again later. Only right, Pfizer. Right. So everything we're about to talk about is delimited to the narrow case of Pfizer. And okay. they voted 16 no, three yes. So that was defeated. They then revised the voting question and said, well, what about a booster dose at six or more months in people age 65 and older and at high risk of um, uh, uh, severe disease? They voted 100% yes on that. Then a third vote, which was should healthcare providers and others at high risk for occupational exposure um, be included? And the vote was 100% yes. Now what happened is that this past Wednesday and Thursday, as per protocol, it went from the FDA advisory committee to the CDC's advisory committee called the ACIP, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. I have been a past member of both of these committees, so I know how they work well. So again, after hearing the data for a day and a half, they then voted. The first question was, should there be booster doses? Again, this is only for Pfizer vaccine. Should there be booster doses for people age 65 and older or in long-term care facilities six months or more 
after the primary series. And it was a unanimous yes. Now that was a should recommendation. It should be offered. The second vote was in people 50 to 64. So they've stepped it down one age range who have uh, medical conditions. And the vote there was 13 yes, two no. And again, that was a should recommendation. It should be recommended. Now, two more votes. The third vote was what about 18 to 49 year old? So now the third step down, 39 year olds uh, uh, who have medical conditions and basing that on their individual risk and benefit, which we'll come back to. And that was nine yes, six no, a very close vote. And that was a may be offered. And that one, is, that one was difficult because now you're in the situation and, and CDC will have to do this very carefully of defining what medical conditions, what would be the individual risk and benefit uh, parameters that a, that a clinician would take into effect. Then the final one, should 18 to 64 year olds with occupational, you know, at high occupational risk or in an institutional setting that was high risk be offered the vaccine? It was six yes, nine no. So that did not pass. Now what happened, that was that vote took place last Thursday. Um, on Monday, the CDC director overruled that last vote and approved boosters for 18 to 64 year olds who are at risk of exposure and transmission because of their occupational or institutional setting. So that now is being operationalized. The key thing here is that they're gonna to have to make clear to the public, to the providers, who is at risk. This is a confusing set of recommendations because there's been pro and con votes. One has been added or changed. We're looking at a total of four. So we can kind of make it easy. If you got as a primary series, the Pfizer vaccine, okay? That's all we're talking about is Pfizer. If you're 65 and older and it's been six months or more, you are eligible for a booster. Okay. If you're 50 to 64, and you have medical conditions that place you at high risk, you are eligible for the booster. If you're 18 to 49, talk to your provider based on medical condition and your individual balance of risks and benefits, you may be able to get it. And then lastly, for people 18 uh, to 64 years old who are uh, healthcare providers who are in uh, for example, congregate living situations or who, are, who have occupations that place them at high risk for transmission, such as school teachers, for example, they also may be eligible. And uh, that should happen now very soon. I know a lot of people are going, they call it freelancing, um, going and, and getting their, their booster. Um, so I think we have, I think we have solved the booster issue, implementation is going to be a bit of a challenge. One note, we do not know how long durability of the booster dose will be mm -hmm. by definition. We've mm -hmm. just started doing it. We also don't know 
what would happen with a new variant. Um, and many people think that the need for the booster has been based primarily on time since completion of the primary series with some effect due to the Delta variant. Okay, so that's fine for people who had the Pfizer vaccine, but what about people who had Moderna and J&J? &J? What happens to them if they want a booster? Little more complicated of a situation. So the reason that they could uh, approve or if you will expand the Pfizer EUA is because they were the first ones out of the gate had collected data on this. Both Moderna and J&J &J are doing the same thing, but are a bit behind. So what do we know about the J&J &J vaccine? Well, we don't have a peer reviewed publication yet. We only have a press release from the company showing that uh, vaccine efficacy went up to 94% after a second dose, oh, wow. um, globally, that same vaccine efficacy after a second dose was only 75%, unclear uh, why. Um, the follow-up for that was only between uh, one month and two months. So again, not a long amount of durability data. For, um, for Merck, it's interesting. Um, that vaccine, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm thinking about antivirals for Moderna. Uh, that's interesting, both because the dose is almost a little more than three times higher, and there was a week longer between doses, mm -hmm. and probably some minor differences in the lipid nanoparticle. Efficacy for the Moderna vaccine has been and persists being higher than J&J &J or Pfizer. What will be the long-term meaning of that? Again, by definition, we, we don't know yet. What we can say is there was uh, just released this morning <laughs> a uh, paper in JAMA looking at a Pfizer booster in those who had gotten the Moderna vaccine and those who had gotten the Pfizer vaccine. If you look in people over the age of 50 who got a Moderna primary a Pfizer boost, their antibody level was almost 72 in, in the way this was measured. If you look at people who got a Pfizer primary series and a Pfizer boost, and again, were over the age of uh, 50, their antibody level was still less than half that of Moderna, only 31. Now, what is the clinical meaning of that? It, it's hard to know at this point, but and I've just given you a very quick run over the data, it's led to a lot of confusion. Yes, um, more, very confusing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, more is not necessarily better. Might more mean um, efficacy for a longer period of time? Yes, maybe. But our way out of this, and as, uh, as uh, Dr. Walensky at the CDC said, and I agree with it, we cannot boost our way out of this pandemic. I mean, this, this is a chasing our tail uh, kind of scenario until we get the large proportion of Americans who are eligible for vaccines vaccinated. The biggest fear we have is that we're gonna continue to generate variants, mutants, that will increasingly learn how to escape immunity. We've seen that with the Delta variant. 
We are concerned about the Mu, uh, Mu variant. There's another variant called the R1 variant that uh, has kind of disappeared from the US, interestingly enough. Uh, but all of these are possibilities. So Greg, one thing I wish you would clear up for me is I, I have difficulty with what is the difference between a third dose and a booster? Are you getting the same medication, the same vaccine, or is a third dose different than what you'd get in a booster? No, they're, they are identical. Um, and, and again, that terminology, I agree, has led to some confusion. So a late dose, a late third dose, is a terminology restricted to those who are moderately to severely immunocompromised. Okay. They need a three-dose, if you will, primary series, whereas you and I got a two-dose series. A booster dose is, is, is something that occurs after the primary series. It is a true boost. So it may well turn out that the moderately to severely immunocompromised who got three doses will also have to get what in essence is a fourth dose, their booster. Whereas you and I would get a third dose, one booster. And it's the same dose, it's the same vaccine. Okay, okay, makes sense. Greg, tell us about the latest and with kids and vaccines. Yeah, this is good news and I, I, I'm pleased to, to share this. It, it turns out that the manufacturers have been able to enroll children faster than they thought and collect the data, even though they expanded the size of the study. So there is thinking that prior to Halloween, we will see an EUA approval for children down to the age of five. So five to 11 years old. We already have the EUA for mm -hmm. 12 and above. Now, it will be a dose of uh, Pfizer vaccine that is 10 micrograms rather than the 30 micrograms that many of us would have gotten, so a third the dose. Now, what they're working on is people six months to four years old who will get a tenth of the dose. Instead of 30 micrograms, they'll get three micrograms, and the studies show it's safe, it's effective, and those younger kids, no surprise, at those much lower doses generate antibody responses equal to people in that 12 to 18-year-old uh, age group. So I, I think the good news is that we're going to see that become available. Now, here's my prediction, <laughs> okay? This is moving into prediction. You heard it here first. Yeah. We're going to see, and we are already starting to see a trend I've been able to follow for over a week or two now of declining, slowly declining cases. If people use masks and responsible distancing, if there's no new variant, I expect, expect that trend to continue. What I'm afraid is going to happen is just like last year, we'll get to midwinter and have another surge. But that decline is gonna fool people into thinking there's no more risk, that'll be happening just as the vaccine for kids will be coming out and people say, well, we don't need it. And that will fuel the, uh, uh, a midwinter surge. 
Greg, continuing on the theme of kids and vaccines, we have had a number of listeners ask us the very same question, and that is this. They have understood that the Moderna vaccine might be more effective against some of the variants. And they're wondering, even though Pfizer is likely to get um, an emergency use authorization for children the fastest, should they have their child get the Pfizer vaccine or should they wait? You know, I'm going to continue uh, what we said from the very beginning. The best vaccine to get is the vaccine available to you. And I say that particularly in the case of kids. Why are we even immunizing children? A valid question, because they tend not to die. Now, now there have been, in fact, over 500 deaths. They tend not to be hospitalized, though with Delta, we've seen over 20,000 hospitalizations. But at the population level for kids, that's still at least an uncommon event. So we're trying to prevent that uncommon event. We're trying to prevent them from spreading it to other people and keep them in school and social activities. That's the reason, that conglomeration of reasons is why we would immunize kids. So if I had a child that was, you know, five, eight years old, you know, whatever, as soon as that EUA was uh, available, I would have them immunized with Pfizer vaccine rather than waiting an unknown amount of time until uh, Moderna uh, presented data to FDA and got an EUA. Might have a slightly different feeling if I had a highly immunocompromised child or if it was an older adult. But for the younger children, we're not as worried about whether they're going to have severe disease or be hospitalized. We're trying to prevent them from having any disease, spread it, and we want to keep them in school. Makes sense. Greg, there is ongoing research uh, for an antiviral medication to help treat COVID. Do you think that sometime we're going to have a pill that people could take to um, treat COVID? I I think the odds that we will have it are very, very high. Uh, Merck in particular is quite advanced in the development of an oral uh, antiviral called Molnupiravir. They always have these long names. Um, uh, Roche and Pfizer are also engaged in phase two, three studies of an antiviral. And the thought is much like we treat influenza with an oral medication. In fact, for influenza, that has advanced to the point where you take one pill once to treat influenza infection. That's an amazing feat of science. And I think we will begin to see that. And so the the landscape going forward with, with COVID, I would say is rosy. If, if this large number of unvaccinated people will get on board, Otherwise, my concern is we will continue to see the development of new variants and mutants, some of which have already learned how to evade monoclonal antibodies. So it's a serious issue. But if we can solve that issue, what I see is that we'll give a a coronavirus vaccine, let's say annually with the flu vaccine. If somebody didn't get it, had breakthrough disease, whatever, 
I think we'll probably be treating it with an oral antiviral. And I think as time goes on, we're gonna see second and third generation coronavirus vaccines, in particular, the potential for an oral vaccine. Take a pill for your vaccine or a nasal spray or a Band-Aid-like patch to administer the vaccine. So I'm, I'm very um, uh, enthusiastic about that. I think the science is heading in that direction. And uh, maybe that will prove to be more acceptable to people who are otherwise hesitant. Greg, I'm smiling because you used the word rosy, that the <laughs> outlook is rosy. And I think that's the first time I've heard you say that about probably right. <laughs> in a very, very long time. So I felt like we should just stop there while we were ahead. with <laughs> Celebrate that word choice. <laughs> that's right. Tell us, you got anything else to share with us today? I do. You know, uh, we were talking about school, so I thought I would do a little bit of show and tell. Show oh, how say. wonderful. I love show and tell. So what works and what doesn't work? We're seeing all kinds of things. People using hydrogen peroxide. What including, for? Including young kids, nebulizing it, swallowing it, gargling it. No, hmm. no. We're seeing people send me this stuff. We're seeing people taking high doses of vitamin D and a variety of other repurposed drugs. No, no data for that. Home remedies that people are using. This is cedar shavings in a bottle that you open and sniff and somehow it wards uh, COVID away. No. What it's good for moths, I think, cedar shavings. All kinds of pastes, including ivermectin. No. So what does work? Well, what does work is vaccine. We've clearly seen the data in multiple studies across multiple countries over time and mass. So the data are clear. If you want to prevent getting COVID, this is what we do. Once you get COVID, these other things I've shown you are not treatments. They're magical thinking. They're not treatments. There are valid treatments for COVID, monoclonal antibodies, antivirals that are readily available. But as we always say in medicine, prevention is much easier than trying to cure. I would much rather have you suffer an hour or two of arm discomfort and maybe a headache and low-grade uh, fever for a couple of hours and be protected than to see you every day in the hospital uh, with, it, with us struggling, whether you need to go on oxygen or not, treating you with a variety of medications, you losing school, work time, uh, maybe suffering a complication, maybe having long COVID, when all of that is unnecessary. Well, those are some true words of wisdom. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. I have never ceased to be amazed by the willingness that some individuals have to use what they read about on the internet or that otherwise might be unproven or even unsafe, uh, but not... People are still, I mean, this started early on. People are still yeah. gargling and even swallowing bleach I didn't have a bottle of that to show, please do not do that. Please don't do that. 
the, the irony uh, that, that, we, that I face, it keeps me up at night because I get emails from people from all over the world. They will reject a vaccine that has been studied this intensely and then begin to use treatments for which there are no scientific data. I mean, it boggles the mind to understand what tips you into an unregulated uh, treatment where we have no safety or efficacy data. On the other hand, we have a vaccine with uh, abundant efficacy and safety data and, and one is hesitant or rejects it. It doesn't make any real sense. Thanks for being here today, Greg. Those were some great words of wisdom. My pleasure. Our thanks to infectious disease, a virology and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland, for being with us here again today to give us our COVID updates. And there were quite a few of them today. I hope that you learned something. I know that I did. We wish each of you a wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.